Merry Christmas. Gosh, like I was telling my wife the other day, did anybody else feel like where did Christmas like suddenly come from? I'm like, gee, Willikers, man. And I, I just sound like beaver right there. But man, it's just came out, it kind of came out of, out of nowhere. But man, I'm just I'm so excited. Everybody's here. I can't wait. We're going to open God's word today. If you need a Bible, there'll be some people coming down the aisles. They'd love to be able to give you a Bible. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13 today. So if you got your Bibles, uh, you can turn there. <coughs> if you don't know where 1 Corinthians is, just look somebody next to you. Um, when I first started following Jesus, I couldn't find anything in the Bible. And so I always had people next to me, and I'd be like, okay, you know, where's, where's Second Hesitations and Third Fleshalonians? Because I just, I never knew where those things were. And so just look at somebody next to you, tell them to help you. But we're going to be looking at a, a passage of Scripture today that's kind of a, a passage that probably a lot of you, regardless of whether you follow Jesus or not, you've heard it, but you've probably heard it at weddings. We tend to read this one at weddings because it is, it is beautiful the way Paul laid it out. It's a poem that he wrote. But especially in light of where we're trying to go as a church over this, this season in which we're trying to worship Jesus and worship the incarnation, the, the coming of the God-man, fully 100% God, 100% man, coming into this world. And let me tell you this, when he came in, in broke not only life and not only change and and transformation, but I would say this, especially off of what Christian did such a phenomenal job preaching about last week, in broke love. And I think for humanity in our battle and our struggle, and we'll talk about this a little bit today, to understand what love is, I would say this, read about Jesus. He is the perfect illustration, perfect example. If you wanna understand it, look at his life, watch how he lived, how he engaged, <clears throat> and so that's what we're going to do. And this is Paul, a guy named Paul who was an apostle. He was writing to this church in Corinth in, in, in 1 Corinthians, and he was trying to explain to them this, this, this idea of what love looks like. And I would say this, if we're going to really kind of encapsulate love, and we'll look back at the definition that Christian gave us last week, but it is a radical, self-sacrificial, low-giving reality if we're going to really understand love. Love is not like what the world has told us about. In fact, one of the things that's been so fun for me this week is I kept looking up all kinds of songs that have within them the title love. And when you look at those things, it's almost like love. Here's, here's, the, here's a term for you. Falling in love as if love is an accident. Right? Well, what happened? I don't know. I just fell into it kind of came out of nowhere. But that's not love at all. It is something so much bigger and so much more beautiful. And I would say all those things that we talk about with love are just signposts pointing towards this greater reality, which is Jesus Christ. But in it, one of the things we were talking about <coughs> is that in order for us to live like, <coughs> live like God's designed us to live, we need to understand and live love. And the greatest example was inside of our triune God. Now, Christian used this, this, this uh, uh, a quote last week, and so let me just read it to us, and we'll kind of talk about it a little bit, about how it's going to guide us through. But Tim Keller, writing in a book that he wrote, he said, the life of the Trinity is characterized not by self-centeredness, but by mutual self-giving love. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him, each voluntarily, and I love this, 
circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. And I love this last sentence. That creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of love and joy. It's this idea, and I wish I could show you, and it's kind of like trying to explain what happens in the atomic reality in a, when all of a sudden you put two chemical or two atoms together and they bond. There's something that beautiful that happens inside of that, and this is really what he's trying to talk about. There's this deference that each person of the Trinity shows to the other one, and this is what Paul's going to talk about when he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 31 at the very end, I'm going to show you something that is the more excellent way. Now, what he's getting at there, this being the more excellent way, is we know this, that our understanding of love, especially in our culture, <coughs> in our world, and in our time, is that love tends to be very focused on me, how my needs are met, how I am viewing things, whether or not I'm happy, whether or not I'm satisfied and content, all those different things on whether the person is appealing to me or not appealing to me is love, but yet Paul is in this now in 1 Corinthians gonna say, I wanna show you something that is the more excellent way. And the beauty of what happened is when Jesus Christ came to earth, and we're gonna kind of just stick with this idea of dance, and so if you don't like dance, and you're sitting there going, oh, I wish you'd use a different illustration, you just gotta suck it up, because we're gonna talk about dance today. But when Jesus Christ came to earth, here's the beauty of it. What came with him was the dance. Now watch this. In John 17, one of, the, one of my favorite passages in all of scripture, <coughs> Jesus has been talking about how he's leaving, and in leaving, the Spirit of God is going to come, but then he's reflecting on his ministry that he had, and he, he begins to talk about his ministry from the standpoint that this glory that the Father had given him, and how they, they operated perfectly as one. He came to do the will of the Father, but I really want to focus on verse 26. He says, I made known to them your name and I'll continue to make it known, watch this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In other words, that they might dance with us. Jesus Christ didn't just come to earth so that we would avoid hell. He didn't just come to earth to somehow make our life better. He actually came to earth with an invitation of being transformed. That's why 14 through 16 was all about the Holy Spirit in the book of John, is that he was coming and calling his people to dance the way that we were created to dance. We were created actually to love in the way that he's talking about. We were created to do this in the excellent way. This is why in John 13, and I'm so apologize for coughing. Um, if I cough uh, too much, yeah, well, don't leave, please. <laughs> But in John 13, 35, he just says this. This dance that you're invited into is so that all people will know that you're my disciples if you have, look at there, love for one another. We always talk about apologetics. How will our world know? The way that our world will know, the Bible talks about that we are Christians, is through what? Love. It's the mark of who we are. It's the reason for which we're created. It's, it's the dance to which we've been called to as a church. 
But this love, and this is really important when we look at our definition, this love, again, is not how the world defines it. This love is different that it's enduring, willing commitment to seek the good of the other, which, again, sounds so odd in our world that's so used to falling in and out of love, and it's so used to love just being this four-letter word that we kind of cook around at whatever means we want to use it. Jesus came into this world to model and to demonstrate something that was all about seeking over a long term, at a costly way, the good of another. And I would even say this, this is the word I'm going to get us into as we look at this passage. (coughs) The idea of love is that Jesus went low. He went low and became a servant. He went low and chose to die upon the cross as not only just anybody, but as a criminal. Jesus went low to show us who death is. And here's the key and here's the kicker of it. He did it so that he might call others to come dance with him in the same way. Now here's what we're going to do today when we look at it. I think there's two major problems we're going to try to overcome and we're going to answer a, a question in here just a little bit. The question that's been in the back of my mind then is how can we stop the dance? If we're designed to be this way, if this is what God's called us to be, if this is what he's saved us for, then how can we stop the dance? Well, if you look down in your Bibles in 1 Corinthians 13, the answer to this is how do we stop the dance is we have not loved. That's what he's going to say. And in it, he's going to say we have not loved because we're emphasizing the wrong things. It's what happened in Isaiah 29, right? All the people, they are, Jesus or God says, they're coming to me with their lips and with the things that they're saying, they say that somehow that they love me, but at the end of the day, he said, their hearts are far from me. It's what happened to the Corinthians. They, they thought they were doing all the love, or excuse me, the Ephesians in, in Revelation 2. They thought they were doing all these loving things, <laughs> but at the end of the day, Jesus says to him, this I have against you, that though you keep out the false teachers, though you do all these different things, You've abandoned the love we had at first. The mark of the church is this enduring, willing commitment to seek the good of the other. And at Christmas time, and I would even say this, for where Cornerstone has to go in the future, this has got to be the mark of us. I think this is important, especially the more and the more our world becomes so opposite becomes so much into seeking their own good, seeking what's best for them, we are gonna then, I think like Jesus talked about, be like that, that lamp that just sat upon a hill that was a light to the world. We're gonna be this people now that are different, that are now not consumed with trying to get all of theirs, but instead now, we become this group of people, even at great cost to themselves, we demonstrate the greatness of our God and the power of Jesus and the reality of the Holy Spirit inside of us when we do what? When we commit ourselves to an enduring, willing commitment to the good of another. Now this week it was interesting when I was trying to define love. Like I said, I went to some songs. So here we go. I'm about to date myself. But that's okay. When we look at love, Pat Benatar (laughs) thought that love is a battlefield, right? I mean, that was that good stuff. Poor Tom Jones would never fall in love again. Mariah Carey, she had a vision of love. Yeah, there you go. You know, you know what I'm talking about. I found a newer song, Kane Brown. I loved this one. Love is like a rodeo. 
foreigner. They, see, at least they were honest. They wanted to know what love is. <laughs> Queen's answer to that, it's a crazy little thing. <laughs> bon Jovi thought that all of you out there give love a bad name. <laughs> Elvis Presley couldn't help falling in love. The great 70s disco band, Sweet. Does anybody remember them? Everybody remember Sweet? Love is like oxygen. Here's one of the, I did, I'd never seen this song before. You get too much, you get too high, not enough, and you're going to die. <laughs> oh, I thought that was funny. Seriously, who knew who sweet was? Raise your hand. Tell the truth. Shame the devil. Okay, now you know who to pray for this week. Poor Beatles, they knew it was all that you need is love, but then they couldn't buy it. And I'm just so thankful that Whitney Houston, even though everyone will never love you, Whitney will always <laughs> love you. Queen and David Bowie, they wanted us to give love a chance. And in all of this, there's still the quandary of meatloaf. He'd do anything for love, but what? He won't do that. And we're still wondering what that is, right? <laughs> now, because this idea of love is so messed up, what I want to do in the passage that we're looking at today is I want to take, and I want to take Christian, the definition he gave us last week, and I want to import it into 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Now, my hope is in seeing this definition a little bit differently, you're going to read 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, I would encourage this. As you're doing your time in the Advent, I would take out the word love, not because love's not an important word, but because we have such a skewed understanding of love, take the definition and put it in for every time you see the word love. So even by the time you get to what Christian's going to preach about next week, when he gets to the, <coughs> the apex of chapter 13, where love is patient, love is kind, Put the definition in there. Now watch, watch what this looks like when you take out the word love and put the definition in. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels but have not the enduring, willing commitment to seek the good of the others, look at that. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Doesn't that kind of add a richness to it? Look at verse two. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all the mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not the enduring, willing commitment to seek the good of the other, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not the enduring, willing commitment to seek the good of the other, I gain nothing. Now he's opening us up to help us to kind of understand is that we tend to think about the wrong things when we think about what love actually is. Now, if I were to kind of, kind of try to break this up into, into, into three ways in which you're kind of looking at this off these three verses, I would say that there's three ways, and this is what we're going to kind of look at today, of three different ways to kill the dance. Now, let, let, me, let me tell you a little story to kind of help you understand, because I used to actually be a, an amazing dancer, and I think I've told you before, I actually won a dance competition. But it was long ago, so there's no video evidence. <laughs> but one of, the things, <laughs> one of the things that my friends and I love to do is we love to go to bars. 
Uh, this was my pre-Jesus days, and we used to love to go to bars, and we used to love to, like, to swing dance, right, to country dance. And so we would always go there because we knew we needed to get there before 10.30, because at 10.30, that's when all the drunk people from the different parties would show up, and they would kill the dance. They would kill the dance from different standpoints. One is they wanted to be heard. And if you've ever been around a bunch of drunk people inside of a bar trying to dance, it's deafening. You're just like, oh my goodness. They wanted to be heard. So this is going to be our first thing. They want to be heard. They also want to be seen. Have you ever noticed that a drunk person that thinks they can dance? They can't. And in fact, what ends up happening is, is they only get in the way of the others. So the first thing is, is that we want to be seen. The second one is, or excuse me, the first one is heard. The next one is we want to be seen. But let me just kind of give it to you this way. I think it all builds towards the very last point within all of us is, is there's this deep-seated desire to be significant. I don't care who you are in this idea of being heard, being seen, and being significant, every human being wants it. Our only problem is, is we tend to go after those things in the wrong ways. Instead of realizing that the only way that we'll ever be seen absolutely correctly is by our Savior, Jesus Christ. The only way that we'll ever be heard correctly is by our Father who in heaven hears as we cry out to him. And the only way we will ever find significance in, what, in any way whatsoever is through God our problem is, is we tend to find it in other ways that are not connected to Paul's, or to, excuse me, to Christian's definition that he gave us last week, this idea of an enduring, willing commitment, <coughs> excuse me, for the good of the other, <coughs> excuse me. Talk amongst yourselves about your favorite 70s songs for just a second. <laughs> All right. So here's the first thing we're going to look at, this idea of I want to be heard. Now, let me just say this. If you really want to love somebody, one of the greatest ways to love them is to actually listen to them. James, when he talked about this, he said, be slow to what? Speak. Slow to anger, but what? Quick to listen. Now, in this, when Paul's writing this, <coughs> these were people, especially when you look at how he frames it out, that had, he said, the capacity to speak in any language whatsoever on this earth, or the second one is in angel language. Now, we don't know fully what that means, and different people have different views on it, and I don't, I don't want to get caught up in it, other than the fact that he's talking about this idea of hyperbole, because no human being can able to speak any language, and, and no human being really kind of in some ways understands what an angel language even sounds like. His point is, though, is that if you separate out this idea of love from it, in other words, even if you can be heard in all those different languages, if love is removed from it, this is the scariest part in the world. Watch this. If love is removed from it, all you are is like those drunk cowboys that show up to a swing dance. You're just a loud, clanging, noisy gong. I went up with my son to a sixth grade camp not too long ago through his school. And have you ever watched sixth grade boys trying to impress sixth grade girls? It's beautiful. <laughs> in fact, in order to get their attention, the volume level goes from 1 to 11 faster than almost anything on this planet. I think it was faster than a speeding bullet like Superman. Why? I want to be heard. 
I'm here. Fine little lady, here I am, right? I mean, it, just, it was incredible to me. The problem with it is, is that it's not attached to love. Now, we laugh at little kids about it, but let's be really honest. Adults do it too. Have you ever heard of one-upper? If you don't think you have, it's probably you. <laughs> or even the person that is just loud and boisterous trying to get everybody's attention. Or even it's the quiet person that just sits there angry, wishing that the other person would shut up so that they might be heard. Deep within all of us, though, according to James 3, is the capacity to use the tongue to do incredible things, but also the capacity to do awful things. Now, into this comes Jesus, the very one. Now, just think about this for a second. Jesus literally spoke with angels on a regular basis. They worshiped him. And the one that could speak to angels, the one that if he wanted to, because we know this, he spoke Hebrew at times when he would come to this world. He spoke Aramaic. He spoke in different languages. <laughs> but the incredible thing about him is, is that in speaking, Jesus, when he came to this earth, never demanded that people would listen. In fact, he would always say this, to him who has ears to hear, let him what? Listen. Jesus didn't demand to be heard. He didn't demand and he didn't come in and he wasn't overwhelming in how he spoke. But have you ever noticed this? When Jesus spoke, now just again, James 3, when he came in and he spoke into the world, he caused either people that, were that weren't dancing to be able to dance or even the proud and the arrogant, he was not afraid to confront them that they were dancing the dance that had nothing to do with God. He literally spoke and what would happen is, is the blind would see, the wind would cease, the crowds were moved, the, the downhearted and the downheart trodden were rejuvenated, the proud were silenced. What he's saying is, is that this speech that he's talking about is to be used not for my own benefit, but to go back to the definition we've talked about, the good of others. Now here's where it gets difficult. Like, personally, like, my wife and I don't fight. We just have discussions. <clears throat> and have you ever noticed when you have those discussions, <clears throat> you know you have the capacity to use your tongue to do incredible things, or you can tear the other person down incredibly. I've noticed that even in my own parenting, those moments that you just want your kid to shut up because you're trying to get on with life, that capacity instead of building them up, this capacity that we can then use with the tongue to tear them down. Paul is saying, if the love is not attached to the tongue, shut up. You have nothing to say. That's what he's trying to get at. If it's not to build up others, keep your mouth shut. That means as we enter into the political season, church, if what we're saying about those in politics is not to build up, let me just say this, on behalf of the God who sits on high, shut up. I'm serious. The church does not need to be another group of people screaming and yelling and bantering. We are the church that believes whoever gets put in power, he only got put in power there because God allowed that one to get there. So, shh, as my grandma used to say. As we enter into all these different aspects of Christmas, 
as you go to neighbors, as you go to schools. Man, learn what it means to use this language to build up. That's his first point. So here's his second point. (coughs) If the first one is to be heard, the next one is to be seen. Now watch what he does here. If I have prophetic powers, look at that, he's going to say that. In other words, if I have this amazing capacity to do something, to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, if I can do all those different things but have not love, look at this, I am nothing. Wow. He doesn't even say he's a noisy gong. Like, just think about how fearful it is as a human to be told you're nothing, you're invisible. Now, the weird part about this is, is when we think about it from a counterintuitive standpoint, we have a fear of being invisible, but yet the more we seek to be seen, what Paul is saying here is the more actually you become nothing. Well, that freaks us out. Deep in all of us, we don't want to be forgotten. (laughs) We don't want to be the kid that gets left at the store like I did one day, my mom did to me. But instead, when we talk about love, love has this phenomenal capacity to understand that not only am I heard by my Father in heaven, but I'm seen by him. And so therefore, whether or not someone sees me right now is irrelevant because he's got me. I think at the core of this, especially this idea to be seen, this word power sticks out to me. (laughs) If you think about it, Jesus could have, with all of his power, he could have done all the things we're talking about. He had prophetic powers. He could have understood all mysteries and all knowledge. He could have moved mountains. And yet every aspect of what Jesus did within his power and how he then saw the world was to restore humanity to the purpose and the reason for which God had called us to be, even at great cost. The model of him coming in and showing us how to dance from a Philippians 2, 6 through 8 standpoint is that he became a human and not only a human but a servant and not only a servant but a servant who died and died even at the point of a criminal. He did all of these different things for people. He engaged in the life of others. He used every aspect of his power. What to do? To invite people into the dance. This is huge, the way Paul is putting it together. But why did he do it? We sometimes forget. Because he believed if he lowered himself, that he was now gonna follow a path in which Philippians 2, 9 through 11, he was going to be exalted, and not just exalted as anybody, but exalted as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And by the time we get to verse 11, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. He went low because he believed that the Father could exalt him. This means in our arguments and in our disagreements, we go low believing that even as we go low, and I don't mean mean, but in servant and climbing underneath people in our disagreements and frustrations, we do it because we believe God exalts the humble. We also believe, though, that he works against the proud. But when Jesus Christ died, here's one of my favorite passages in all of 1 Corinthians 5, or 2 Corinthians, excuse me. It says, for the love of Christ, look at this, controls us because we've concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Well, why did he die? Watch this. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is one of the clearest examples of why did Jesus die? 
He died that those who live might no longer live for themselves. That's powerful. But why? Why can I live a life that no longer lives for myself? Because the God of the universe has you. I can put myself out there at great risk. I can choose even to get to the point where others begin to belittle me and see me as one that doesn't even matter. It's the way that Sinclair Ferguson caught this. Watch this. I love how he quoted this. Whatever gifts you may have, love always means that you come down. It means that you use those gifts for the good of others, not to make yourself feel good. It means that you're willing to do things that are uncomfortable or inconvenient for you. Look at this last part. Or that go what? Unnoticed. That's why Jesus died. So you no longer have to live for yourself. So what's the last one? We'll go to this last one and then we'll, we'll call it quits for this morning. If the first one is to be, to be heard, the last one is to be seen, this is, I think, one of the most important ones, is this longing that we have to be significant. He says in there, if I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, he, he's kind of taking the example of Jesus' commands to the little extreme. So like in Matthew 16, 24, also in like uh, 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 Matthew 19, 21, he's just talking about this idea of even if I go to this extreme, but look what he says in there. <coughs> the idea is he's now gonna say, I gain nothing. I think he's toying around with this idea of Matthew 7, 21 through 7, 23. If, you've, if you remember this passage, so many people are so fearful about it. This person now stands before God and he says to God, look, in your name I've prophesied, in your name I've cast out demons, in your names I've done mighty works. And in standing before them, suddenly God looks at this one that's done all of these amazing things and he says, depart from me, I don't know you. And then he says this word, you who practice lawlessness. Why would he say that? Well, in the book of Matthew, to kind of understand this idea of lawlessness, to have lawlessness was connected to this idea of what's the chief end of the law. Well, the chief end of the law is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, this is a different way of kind of looking at Matthew 7.21 through 7.23, which I think couples up to 1 Corinthians 13.3. You can have all these things that you've done that are incredible, but if there's not love, you gain nothing. That's huge. See, all throughout 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he's been talking about this idea of what it's going to be to actually gain something. Because I, I don't think it's just that you gain nothing. It's that there's so many things that we do in our lifetime to be seen by people. It's the Matthew 6 thing, where he talks about people praying to be seen by other people. He says, that, fine, that's your reward. But there's something about love, there's something about love that is so different and so distinct that it has nothing to do with philanthropy, it has nothing to do with anything that we have to do in life, but what really matters, he says, is to be the people I've called you to be, to just love with radical love. To love, and this is what I'd say, the enduring, willing commitment to seek the good of the other. And this Christmas, what would it look like? I was just trying to imagine this in the back of my head. What would it look like if Cornerstone made this commitment to the enduring, willing reality of seeking the good of others? What would it feel like? 
What would it look like to come into a room like this where everybody now wasn't worried about whether or not Billy was going to sing my type of songs or not my type of songs, whether or not the temperature was hot or cold? What would it look like if we came into this room and instead, man, we just couldn't be so excited to see one another and to serve one another? What would it look like to come into this room, man, and to honestly look at somebody when you say this question, how are you, and actually mean it? What would it look like to pray over somebody when they're here? What would it look like as the kids come in? Maybe some of you, you know, you don't want the little kids in here, and you're like, oh, those little sting little kids that are in here. What if instead you actually loved those kids? What if the noises got made in here all that time that they were in here with us, instead of frowning and going, how are we supposed to sing like we're supposed to sing if these kids are in here? And instead we went, shut up, I love those little crying out of control voices. This is so awesome. And you serve others. What would it look like to honestly love our literal neighbors this Christmas? What would it look like to show up to work and not be fighting for our bonus, our Christmas bonus, but instead just seeking to love the people in and around the offices where we serve? Those of you in here that are students, what would it look like to not somehow be so consumed in just getting out of school, but what if you actually loved these, these human beings called teachers? What if you cared about the kids within your school that no one else cares about? What if you loved the unlovely and cared about the ones that no one sees? What if this Christmas, think about it, what if this Christmas we actually looked at those that were craving to be seen and craving to be heard and craving to be significant and we brought with us the dance that Jesus has called us to dance and in coming into that particular moment, we come in and we love others. What in the world would that look like? I think that would look like the dance we've been called to dance. I think Sinclair Ferguson hit it Jesus had all the prophetic powers, the understanding of all mysteries, all knowledge. He had mountain-moving faith. But because he loved us, look at this, he kept coming down. So the question is then, well, how do I love like this? Because if you're anything like me, man, I battle loving people. I mean, seriously, most people don't know this, but I was going to become a chemist and a mathematician so I didn't have to be around people. And Jesus saved me, and thank goodness, I love people because Jesus rescued me. But why? Thank you. John 4, 19, it's kind of something that Mike alluded to earlier in the service. We love because he first loved us. I think so often we try to find love. I think in the end of it, we are like foreigner. We want to know what love is. I think we are like a lot of different bands We sit around trying to find love like God has hidden it like the Easter bunny. And I'm just here to tell you this Christmas, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you can stop looking for love. Love is found in the person of Jesus. And when you have found him, the beauty of it is, is that love finds you. This Jesus that came as King of kings and Lord of lords to this earth 
modeling to the world what it meant to be the great king of the universe, bringing along with him the dance of the triune God, came. And when he came, he was killed, he was buried, and he rose again reminding us that he truly is who he promised he was, king of kings and lord of lords. And he's calling us now to bend our knee to this great king. And in bending our knee to this great king, 1 Corinthians 5 says, you now can learn to dance the dance that he's called us to. I also love this fact. You don't have to know it perfect. In other words, this dance is something that we learn all of our lives. Before I got married, I seriously thought I was a loving person. Then I got married and I had to learn to love my wife. I'm still learning to love her, not because of her, but because of me. Then we were married for about 11 years and I thought, oh my gosh, I seriously think I'm one of the most loving people on the planet. And then I had children. And with each child that came along, I had to learn to love. I thought I was a loving person until I became a pastor. Like seriously, some of you are super easy to love and then there's, there's others of you. But the beauty of love is it's not something that's learned in one day. It's something that's learned over a lifetime. It's something that we gather together and we, we learn the steps, right? I mean, some of us start off dancing like this when we kind of first learn about love. But, you know, then we start to dance like this. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, you want to dance with me, you know it. It means we stop what Johnny Lee said, looking for love in all the wrong places. And we just learn to dance with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Cornerstone, in the name of the Father, who dances the dance with the Son and the Spirit in perfection. Who though in how the Godhead fits together, he, he heads it all he came and he, he allowed his son to come to make a name of his son and he wants his son to be exalted and proclaimed and the Holy Spirit to be unleashed in this world. In the name of the son who came and showed us how to dance, but still he showed us how to dance, not by making much of himself from that standpoint, but choosing actually to make himself much less to climb under, to go low so that he might be exalted. In the name of the Holy Spirit, May you be empowered this week, next week, the week after, and I would even say this, over the coming years, to be men and women that dance this dance that the Holy Spirit has given to all of humanity. May husbands love their wives so radically that it cannot be explained apart from the Holy Spirit. May wives love their husbands even though they're sometimes hard to love in ways that can only be explained via the Holy Spirit. May parents love kids and kids love parents. May you love those at work. May you actually love your literal neighbor. May we go as God's people. And I would just say this, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, cornerstone, go dance. Go dance. And all God's people said, <laughs>